0: Well, many of you know who uh, Michael Phelps is. He's the most decorated Olympian of all time. An American swimmer, Phelps has accumulated 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. But what you may not know is what it took for Michael Phelps to get there. In preparation for one Olympics in particular, Phelps did 75 workouts in 24 days. Uh, From 1997 to 2005, he averaged 10 workouts per week. He said that all he did was, quote, eat, sleep, swim, and lift. Pool workouts were from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., and 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. He would swim almost 50 miles a week and consume some 12,000 calories a day. Why? Why would you put yourself through something like this? Well, his answer was simple. He said, I wanted to earn one gold medal. So Michael Phelps disciplined his body. He intentionally put himself through one trial after another in order to be the complete swimmer. And he did it. It's a principle that most everybody knows, but only a few like. You've heard it before. I can remember it in my high school gym. No pain. No gain. You will never be the complete athlete, complete scientist, educator, artist, or even friend, spouse, or parent apart from one key ingredient. Some level of endurance through suffering, through difficulty, through trial. Endurance through trials. Friends, this is the difference between the good and the great. Many know this. Few live it out. But for the few that do, they are the unique ones that are able to look at the trials and count them all joy in view of the end. And So this principle is reality, friends, because it is baked into the DNA of the world that we live in. And that's the truth that we're going to unpack this morning. Pain produces perfection. Pain produces Perfection. Well, welcome to the book of James. Uh, if you want, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of James. You can find it on page 1011 in the pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, the sermon will go better if you keep that in front and you walk it through. That's what we'll do. So we begin the, our study in the book of James this morning. We're going to jump right into the deep end and consider its truths. We, we begin this series that's going to take us all the way to the end of May. And that's our practice here. If you're new to Restoration Church, that's our practice. That's what we do is we, we typically will work systematically through books of the Bible, letting the text, not Nathan, but let the text uh, set the agenda. Uh, as Christians, we believe that God's word uh, to not only be the truth, but we also believe the, God's word to be the law of liberty. So, uh, that's exactly what James will, how James will refer to it in chapter 1 verse 25, right? This law of liberty. Everybody lives by a law. Everybody does. Uh, oftentimes in our society, we're told to live by our own law and expect others to conform to our own personal law. But Christians believe that life and liberty are found in Christ, in Christ. And therefore, the word of Christ is what leads us to liberty to freedom, to joy. He's the one that made us. He's the one that sustains us. He's the one that knows us uh, best. He's the king, so we follow his word. Is it restricting the word? Of course it is. Is it difficult to understand at time? Of course it is. Uh, is it hard to follow and countercultural? Yes. But friends, isn't everything that's worthwhile? No pain, no gain. Pain produces perfection, as we will see. So if God is God and we are not, we should expect to have some of our basic assumptions about things challenged. And that's what God's word does. And that's what the book of James will do. It will challenge us to not only believe in Christ, but to work out what we say we believe. And in doing so, we will discover what authentic Christianity really is. That will become very clear to us in our passage this morning. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Again, we're jumping right into the deep end. Joey asked me last week, are you just going to jump right into James 1? I said, yeah, we're just going to jump right on in. New year, off we go. James 1, 1 to 4. Here we go. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay. So the James that's in reference there in the very beginning is believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. It's writing this. All right? The more noted apostle James dies early from persecution. We read about that in the book of uh, Acts. Um, and we read a good bit about Jesus' half-brother James in the New Testament. For instance, we know in Mark chapter 6 that James shows up, and he is most definitely not a believer. Can you imagine growing up with your brother claiming to be God? Right? So he's not a believer. In Mark 6, James is not a believer. Uh, he thinks his brother, literally Mark 6, it says he thinks his brother's cuckoo, right? So, again, sort of understandable. However, this same James we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And there we see that the resurrected Jesus, the one that overcomes sin and death through the cross and the resurrection, appears to James, The resurrected Jesus appears to him, and it is after this resurrection that James, as well as his half-brother Jude, give their life to Christ and are born again to a new and living hope. And you see that designation right there at the very beginning. James, a servant, the word could be rendered slave, uh, a servant of God and of the Lord. Notice the designation, the Lord Jesus Christ christ we 're used to hearing Jesus Christ, remember, friends and kids, you should know this Christ is not jesus 's last name that 's a title. It means anointed or Messiah, so the Lord Savior Jesus Christ or anointed Messiah. but secondly, we also read about James in Acts chapter 15, so he 's surrendered his life to Christ, and it seems in Acts chapter 15 that James becomes a prominent figure in kind of First Baptist Jerusalem there. Uh, So uh, he seems to be one of the central pastors in the church there in Jerusalem. Therefore, it would make sense that this is the James that writes a letter to the congregation, to his own congregation that is now dispersed. You can see that line about dispersion there in verse one to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the original audience of this letter was likely ethnic background Jews who had trusted in the Lord Jesus for life and godliness, for forgiveness, for a new life. That's who the background likely is. Ethnic background, ethnic Jews that have given their life to Christ, uh, trusted him and been forgiven. This book is probably one of the earliest New Testament books that are written. Um, could be the oldest, maybe in the mid 40s. And so uh, this dispersion, though, that's being referenced there, that's mentioned, uh, that, that being mentioned there should, can be explained by a little bit of church history. All right. So we know, for instance, that at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, there were some 3000 Christians, right, uh, at Jewish background peoples that are born again. 3000 of them come to faith in Christ and they're baptized after that and they're baptized into the church. That's in Acts two. And more and more it says in Acts 2 and even Acts 4, it says that the church grows day after day. And so the gospel in the early portions of Acts had not yet really begun to push through to the Gentiles uh, like it would. And so that's early on. But something happened. In Acts chapter 7, something significant happens. There is Stephen begins to preach the gospel. And Stephen preaches the gospel and he's killed as a result of it for preaching the gospel. And it's soon after that, that persecution begins to erupt there in Jerusalem among the believing Jews, uh, being persecuted by their own Jewish non-believing Jews. As a result, the Jewish Christians begin to flee from Jerusalem to disperse. Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says that, uh, quote, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. That's probably the setting to this book. The Jewish Christians are new to following Jesus as Lord, and they've already, in the short amount of time in which they've trusted Christ, they're already experiencing persecution. So much so that it's even caused them to leave their hometown, as it were. And now they are using the word in verse 1. Now they're dispersed. And so the 12 tribes of Jewish Christians have sprawled out from their homeland, pushed there by the threats and the persecutions of unbelieving Jews. Try to imagine yourself in their position. They find themselves having experienced a, a lot of trials and they find themselves living in a new place around new ideologies with new cultures away from their home church, away from their pastor. And James is writing to them in that situation. He's a concerned pastor, James is. He's concerned because given their trials and given their new context and they're being somewhat new to this faith, they are, they're going to want to fit in with their new cities and skip out on any more trials because it's already been hard. They're away from their church. They're going to be tempted to drift from the faith. Now I want to be clear. We know that Christ loses no one, right? Everyone that he purchases, he keeps to the end, but that doesn't mean that people can't drift. Also, James is likely concerned for the glory of Christ and the good of the church, right? Because as these people go to these different cities, churches are going to pop up and he wants those churches to reflect the truth about who Christ is. And so again, that explains the author, James, that explains the setting, the occasion. And so the occasion of this letter is incredibly relevant to us guys today. Just as these Christians find themselves going through hard things, moving into new places around pervasive ideologies that seem to deceive the elect, tempting them to drift and fit into the culture around them, tempting them to just hit the coast button and do as they please. Friends, just as deception abounded there and then, so does deception abound here and now. Luring us to maybe still take the name of Christ, but love the world. Find the easy road and drift along. Make it as easy as we can until we die or Jesus returns. And so, friends, James wants those first century Christians and we 21st century Christians to understand authentic Christianity. And for James, what's really important to James is not only understand what it is, but what it looks like. James is a book, friends, about practical truths. Practical truths. He's not focused on doctrine as much as he is on its practice. He's focusing very much on not just stuff that we believe internally, but he wants us to understand how it's externally lived out amidst a powerfully deceiving world. Faith, in other words, works. That's where he's going to put a lot of emphasis. Faith works. It offers life, love, and liberty to its neighbors. And so, again, James is burdened for his former flock that is now dispersed. And, beloved, I'm burdened for you as your pastor. As you are dispersed throughout the rest of the week, you are given towards deception. You are given towards uh, just taking the name of Jesus and just sort of hitting the coast button. But what we have to understand is, is that pain produces perfection. We've got to understand what it looks like to actually follow Christ. And that leads us into the body of the work in verses 2 to 4. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Again, big idea here. Pain produces perfection. Take a look at verse 2 there where James says, count it all joy when you meet trials. All right, has James lost his mind? Right? We're tempted to believe that. But before you think that James is some masochist reveling in suffering, you've got to understand what he's telling you to count all joy. All right? He's teaching us that trials are not ends into themselves. Any more than the trials of Michael Phelps' training regimen is an end unto itself. right? No, trials are tools. Trials are tools. right? Like saws and hammers and nails are tools. They're not ends unto themselves. Right? They are tools to build something. And that's what trials, that's what they're doing. Trials are doing something. They've got purpose. They've got meaning. And what they do, what they produce, is what James wants us to count all joy. I'll come back to that idea more in a minute after I explain the rest of the passage. But for now, I want you to look down there. Take a look at that word, when. When you meet trials. Amidst a world full of suffering and what seems to be gratuitous evil, uh, Christians, friends, believe that the Bible uniquely stares suffering in the face and talks about it as an ever-present reality. Christians are honest about evil and suffering. Unlike Eastern philosophies that say evil and suffering are just imaginations, part of our imaginations. Unlike transactional theologies like Job's friends that think that all evil and suffering are are just paybacks or uh, unlike the more sentimental or sovereignless gods believed by many secular thinkers whose god does little more than just shrug at evil and suffering we as christians believe that the god of bible of the bible is brutally honest uncomfortably clear-eyed and honest about evil and suffering and trials of various kinds when when you when you meet trials, not if, when Peter will go on to say in his epistle, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When, when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation friends. You can't go two pages in the Bible without some kind of trial being brutally and honestly described. And by the way, it's not just persecution. All kinds of different trials. And while there are no easy answers to trials and tribulations and evil and suffering in the world, you can take heart in knowing that the God of the Bible is honest about them. Not trying to hide them. Not trying to hide them, but telling you to expect them when you meet trials. Beloved, somewhere along the way, We Western Christians got so luxuriated, we started to expect God to make things easy on us. Or perhaps maybe we've adopted more of the prosperity gospel than we'd like to admit. And we think that we deserve life to be absent of trials. And again, James stares us straight in the face and says, when... We could think of also Paul, right? In uh, Acts 14, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Or again, as, G, as it says of Jesus in Hebrews 5, 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. When did you ever get the idea that life wouldn't be trials and tribulations? Why would we ever think it would not be part of normal life? It's literally on almost every page of the Bible. And it's been the experience of every person that's ever lived on planet Earth. God has been brutally honest and open about it. And I think our grandmothers and grandfathers knew this. Somehow we've forgotten it. Right? Our grandmothers and grandfathers, they sang songs like, quote, whatever my God ordains is right, whose lyrics say, my God is true, each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall soon depart. The African-American church in America in particular knows this so well. Right? They've sang songs like Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen or There is a Bomb in Gilead. But for many of us 21st century, kind of more middle-class Christians that are more well-off, trials do surprise us, don't they? But God's Word makes clear that they shouldn't surprise us when you meet trials. Beloved, you and I are going to meet trials. You know that already. Some of you haven't found that out yet, but you will meet them. Some of you are going through trials right now. You're sitting in it. This is not just abstract for you. This is real for you. Don't be surprised. This is the experience of all of God's people. And notice, look in the passage again. The trials being talked about here are of various kinds. This community would have known firsthand again about the persecution of their faith. They, that's why they're dispersed, remember that? But he doesn't limit it. James doesn't limit it just to the persecutions of the very severe stuff. He says various kinds. could be something as small as a minor sickness or something as major as an unexpected loss of a loved one or famine or something in between, like the loss of a job or an unexpected move. At the trials we face here, are not unique. And they are of all kinds of different varieties. From small to severe. And again most of us uh, in this room are not surprised by this. Some of us again are going through various trials at some point right now. I'm looking at you. And you're going through it. Maybe you've just gotten over COVID. Right? Someone is literally right now going by our church building. Going through a trial. Happens all the time. Our church has experienced a high level of miscarriages last year. Others of you are experiencing heavy-handed bosses. And still others of you are experiencing trials as a result of your faith in Christ. You went home for Christmas and your family made fun of you. They laughed at you. They made fun about what you believed, about some dead men rising from the dead. Dead men rising from the dead. Others of you are concerned about policies, that you know that your employer is going to press upon you. You know that they're going to bring down a kind of morality that is not shared, a worldview that is not shared by the Scriptures. And you're concerned about what that's going to mean. In life, we are going to meet trials of various kinds, small and severe like the one that person is sitting in right now as they go by us. The Lord wants you to be prepared for these things, not... Not surprised by them, but prepared. And so we ask the question, Alright, right, how is it we are prepared? We'll take a look at the text again. By knowing that these trials are tests of our faith. They're tests. That's what it says there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith... So it's important to understand, though, listen, guys, don't lose sight of this. The trials are not met here in this passage. The trials are not meant to test our faith in such a way as to determine our faith. That's not the point of this passage. Going back to the big idea that pain produces perfection, the testing of trials here is meant to communicate a kind of refining. 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 Doug Moo says it well in his commentary. He says, quote, The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. And, guys, that, that becomes more clear as you move on in the passage. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, don't underline that word, produces Produces. So there's something about trials that insofar as we hold fast to Christ, they do something. But what? What do they do? What do trials produce? Well, again, look at the passage. It says they produce steadfastness. Steadfastness. The idea here is endurance. Trials test And as they test, they chip away at the rough edges of us and produce steadfastness, endurance, fortitude. James is going to go on to talk about patience later. This is what trials do as we hold fast to Christ and he to us through the trial. It gives us steadfastness. It gives us staying power. Now, as we think about that, right, we, we think one of the things that most people, the thing we hate the most about the world is trials. And if there was a second thing we hate the most, it would be the need to learn patience, right? How many times have you guys said, like, you know, if don't ask God to teach me patience, right? We don't pray that. We we should, but we, you know, we don't like patience, right? We Western moderns uh, hate anything that doesn't get us what we want quickly and easily, right? A mentor of mine has said that young people tend to see problems clearly, but they have poor depth perception. In other words, they see the wrong thing, yet they don't understand the length of time that it takes to overcome it. They think that it should happen quickly and easily. Another way to explain this is with another axiom that says that we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year. And we tend to underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. Because we've become so distracted by our devices, we've grown less and less patient, less enduring, less steadfast. A 45-minute sermon is a trial, right? (laughs) We get dissatisfied with our jobs, our, our cars, our clothes, our relationships, or even our faith. If they don't give us what we think we need in a short amount of time, and we just move on. Friends, that is not the instinct of the gospel. God made a promise to Abraham when he was 75 that he didn't fulfill for another 25 years. He left Israel enslaved there in Egypt for 420 years. It took hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ finally came. And it's been 2,000 years since Christ has ascended and not yet returned. God is rarely early, friends, but He's never late. He is not in a hurry. He endures patiently and thank God that He does. Just think about how patient He is with us. Aren't you glad that that's the case? We want the quick, efficient, and pain-free life that produces perfection. God, on the other hand, understands the work better than us. He's slow. Oftentimes, in our estimation, inefficient. He's even willing to put us through the crucible because he knows we need endurance if we're going to reach completion. Eugene Peterson says it so well. He says, quote, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. Yet there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination, he says, to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations called Holiness. So, beloved, if we are going to grow into men and women that God made us to be, it's going to take time. It's going to take endurance, it's going to take steadfastness that trials produce. It will not come on the quick and easy, but the often painful and slow. And so, beloved, keep that in mind when you choose a church. Look for churches that are committed to long obedience in the same direction. Using the oftentimes unflashy means of Bible study, prayer, Lord's Supper, year after difficult year. Not flashy, just those simple means of grace. The rice and beans to get you home. Trials teach us our need for that. Meaningful biblical community, friends, shapes us and completes us. And it takes availability, takes sacrifice, and most of all, it takes time. Steadfastness. And what steadfastness produces is wonderful, difficult though it is. When I think about trials that produce steadfastness or endurance, for me, I think about people in our church, like David and Melinda Attaway. I think about Daniel and Amy Bergener, Whitney King, Haig and Laura Thornton. We've been doing life together for over 10 years now. That group and some others. We have mourned together. We've laughed together. We've prayed together, we've sang together, we've served together through all kinds of various trials in each other's lives. They were there for me when Elisha's life was hanging in the balance. We weren't sure if he was going to make it. I was there to weep with David when he lost his mom. When Amy had medical concerns, when Whitney was hurt, when the Thorntons were going through all the trials to get Jaden, we were praying. And at every stage, we were perplexed at times together, we struggled with doubt at times, but we kept letting those trials do what God wanted to do in us. I've watched them endure, and they've watched me. And I've seen it produce steadfastness in them as we followed Christ together for more than 10 years. Had they kept their distance and bumped around to a new church every new, or a new city every couple years, I wouldn't have gotten to see that. What might happen if we keep doing this for another 10 20, 30 years together. What might happen? That's not the case for everybody. Not everybody can do that. Through all the trials that we'll meet together in the coming days, what might their steadfastness look like in the coming years? Guys, this is the work of the church. This is the work of the church. It's not flashy. Holding fast to Christ as we hold fast to one another, and trials produce endurance in us. Guys, just think about what this church has endured the last two years. And what we're still walking through now. Every one of us, right? It's, it's these trials through COVID, through ethnicity, through politics, every trial. It's working to produce endurance in us. Not only individually in our lives, but collectively as a body, as a church. God's doing it now. He's doing something in this Omicron stuff. He's doing something. It's hard. Frustrates me a lot. But he's doing something. He's creating this steadfastness. He's testing us. He's pruning us and strengthening us in endurance to be steadfast. So whatever the Lord is doing in this cultural moment or in your individual lives, we can be sure that he's doing something. He's testing us so that we might learn steadfastness, beloved. But there's more. Steadfastness has a work of its own. Take a look. Look at verse 4. And for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And here it comes. And let steadfastness have its full effect. And we ask why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect there, guys. I know this kind of a per- strange word. Doesn't mean we're going to become God. right? Perfect there means being exactly who God made you to be. Not riddled with sin and brokenness, but instead being full of the spirit of Christ, full of the fruit of the spirit, right? Completely human imaging God as we were intended. So you guys see when you look at this formula, you see what God's teaching us? Trials come into our lives. We count them all joy, knowing that he's doing something knowing that Christ is working in us to produce steadfastness, endurance, and if we let steadfastness have its full effect, in other words, if we don't grieve the Spirit, complaining, being bitter, sinfully angry, fighting against the trial, but instead seeking the Lord's will in it, then steadfastness will make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, pain produces perfection if we let it. Now, how many of you in this room, you don't have to raise your hands. You can just say this silently. I would assume this would be everybody. How many of you in this room would like to be complete, lacking nothing? Can you imagine what that might be like? I I literally sat in my office for like 30 minutes trying to figure out what might that be like. It was impossible. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I tried to. Can you imagine what it would be like to be complete, lacking in nothing? Can you imagine what it would be like to have no struggle with any sin at any point? No fear, no anxiety, no distrust to God. All that bad stuff, all that struggle, gone. And, don't forget this part, all the bad stuff gone in the presence of all the good. Can you imagine what it would be like to have the fullness, the completedness, the perfection of the fruit of the Spirit? The fullness, can you imagine? The fullness of love, the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace, the fullness of patience, the fullness of kindness, the fullness of goodness, the fullness of patience, the fullness of gentleness, the fullness of self-control. Wouldn't you love that? Don't you want that? I want that. Completeness, lacking in nothing. Man, that would be great. As people spend millions of dollars on plastic surgery and degrees and clothing in order to try to get what James is describing right here. They think, to be, they think they can do all of this stuff. You know, the thinking of the world goes like this. You know, if I could just look like this, if I could just be part of that group, if I could get that job, if I could make that much money... If I can live in this place, if I can be married to that person, if I could have those friends, have those kids, then I'd be complete, lacking nothing. Only to define, for the few that actually accomplish that, the few that do find that, they're some of the most unhappy people in the world. The gospel teaches us a different way. The real way, the true way. Completeness must go through trials holding fast to Christ if you're going to get home, if you're going to get complete. That's a big idea. That's what James is teaching us here. So again, just to kind of synthesize all of this, James, again, is writing to a people scattered by persecution, dispersed. They've arrived in new cities with their new faith. They're already suffering. They're far removed from their church, from their pastor who's been caring for them. They're tempted to sort of give up or at least kind of take the name of Jesus and just sort of skip out on the trials and fit in. And their old pastor is writing in going, no, you cannot drift. You cannot just take the name of Jesus and take it easy and fit in with the world around you. You're going to have to let these trials produce steadfastness and steadfastness. When it has its full effect, you don't fight that work. It'll get you home. You'll be complete you got to know that. God's doing something in this. Don't give up on him. He's working. This is not meaningless. Pain produces perfection. All right, so what's the application? Well, first, let me speak to those of you here this morning that are not Christians. The promise of trials producing perfection, friend, is given only to Christians. Look at the passage. It's right there in front of you. Count it all joy, my brothers. The word there is adelphoi. means brothers and sisters. He's writing to those who, like James, go back up to verse 1, are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who, as he says later in chapter 1, verse 18, that have been brought forth by the word of truth. In other words, he's writing to people that have been born again to a new and living hope in Christ alone for salvation. People who have placed the whole of their faith in Christ and are intending to live it out. And so, friend, I, I can offer no comfort that your trials will ultimately produce perfection apart from Christ. I can't make that promise to you. The only way I could offer that to you is if you became like James and became a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting the whole of your life to the Lordship of Christ, trusting him to pay for your sin on the cross, believing his resurrection to be your new life, resulting in these new desires to love him and live for him. That's the only way I can give you a hope of a trial producing perfection is if you submit your life to Christ. If you don't do that, Well, then, as James says in chapter 2, verse 17, whatever faith you do say you have, it's dead. Or as James will say in chapter 1, 26, whatever religion you say you have, James says it's worthless. Meaning your trials will not produce perfection. But instead, the beginning of your everlasting condemnation. And friend, that is not my word. Those are the words of Jesus. Who says himself, many know that passage, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. That's Jesus talking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever perished would not believe but have everlasting life. The very next verse is verse 17. And it says this. Jesus talks and says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. In other words, apart from a faith in Christ that exudes the fruit of Christ friend, you, you stand to inherit more trials, not less. Jesus concludes that passage in John three 36. Again, these are his words. Jesus says, whoever does not obey the son shall not, See life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You don't trust Christ. You don't follow Christ. That's your story. More trials, not less. That don't produce perfection. And so I plead with you this morning. Whatever trial you're going through, friend, I plead with you to turn to Christ. Come to him. He's the only hope that you have that will lead to some kind of hope and perfection and forgiveness and joy and everlasting life. He's the one that you were made for. You can't love the world and try to love Jesus at the same time. And I'm pleading with you this morning to turn to Christ. Follow him. Trust him. Love him. Give yourself to him. A life with him is not easy. I want to be honest about that. As is evidenced by this passage. But it does result in all joy in the end. That's you. You want to trust Christ. Come talk to me. Talk to the friend that brought you. Get involved in the life of this church. Come to the Wednesday night Bible study. Go to a community group. Uh, Find somebody. We'll, We'll match you up with somebody to walk you through the book of Mark. Just to sort of help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. Come back here. Come back here in this gathering. As we will sit and work out what authentic Christianity is for the next few months. And for the rest of us that have placed our faith in Christ. What's our Application to this passage for those of us like James that considered ourselves servants of God and the Lord Jesus Christ guys, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as though something strange were happening, but instead count them all joy in so far as you recall that God's at work in them. I know these various trials guys can be hard, and I want to be clear. When it, when it says count them all joy, that doesn't mean you need to put on a plastic smile. Doesn't mean you need to put on a mask and act like nothing's happening. No. Be disappointed. You should be. Be perplexed. Paul was time and again. Be angry even, but do not sin. Weep. Mourn. But do so knowing God is using this trial like a chisel to make us Perfect. As the crucible burns, it forms us into pure gold. Know that. And a day will come, beloved, when the trials will be over and you will be perfect. That is, you and I will be exactly what God made us to be, lacking nothing in Him. Let that joyful day speak into this day of tribulation. And I know, friend, what it's like to walk through some of these more difficult trials. I've been there, guys. There's times in which I still have them and I will, I know I will in the days ahead. I know what it's like to be going through those trials and wondering if God is even there. Is he absent? My goodness, have you ever read the book of Psalms? Where are you, God? That's in the Bible. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But take heart, beloved. Take heart. This passage teaches us God's doing something. He's doing something. Your trial is not void of purpose. It's not meaningless. You retreat from Christ, that's the place you land in. It's just meaningless. Atheists don't make things better in evil and suffering. They make it worse. Christ comes in, stares it in the face, enters into it, overcomes it, and says there's meaning. doesn't mean you understand it all the time, though. You and I have need for patience, don't we? You and I have need for endurance, for steadfastness. And as long as we give ourselves to the crucible of the various trials, small and large, God will create in us a life that lacks nothing. You're not alone. God knows. He sees. And so part of the, our trials is knowing that. Look at verse 3 again. right? For you know. Some of you need to know. So that's part of the work. It's just knowing God's doing something. But the second part of the application to us in this is that found in that word In verse 4, this word has just really been amazing to me as I've meditated on it. One word, three letters. Let. You see it? Let. Isn't that what it says? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect. Amidst the trials where God is producing steadfastness in you, in us, Let those trials so produce a steadfastness that have its full effect. In other words, don't fight against it. Grieve it, weep it, be disappointed. plead for mercy in it. Yes and amen. But know God's doing something in it. Let it do its work. And you say, well, Nathan, how do I do that? By counting it all joy. Because you know who you will be because of what this trial will do. How do I let it? By counting it all joy because I know in the end something's gonna make, it's gonna be right, it's gonna be good, it's gonna be true, it's gonna be complete as a result of this trial. Let steadfastness be produced by counting the trial all joy because you know the trial has meaning, purpose, it's doing something. Right? None of us want to admit it, but we all know it's true, right? That story about Phelps, it all makes sense to us. We get it, right? All that difficulty he put himself through to be the complete swimmer. We know this. We've done this, right? How many times when you were on maybe a sports team and say in grade school, when you were running the back and forth on the, on the basketball court and you're about to die, like this is terrible. I'm done, right? But we understand those that made it through those times understood that those back and forths were producing in us strength that would serve us in our sport. We know this. We don't like it, but we know this. The time of greatest growth often comes in the most difficult of days. I don't like sharing that truth, but we all know it's true. It is in the winter that the roots spread out below the surface. When all else seems dead, when it grows and eventually produces the beauty of the spring. It is the work of the plow to pierce the ground in order to plant the seed and bring a harvest in the fall. It's the physician's knife that must cut in order to make the body heal. It's the sweat in the weight room that produces the glory in the arena. It's the distance of a loved one that brings the extreme joy of reunion. It's the sting of death that brings about the exaltation of the resurrection. We gotta be honest with ourselves and our God. We are more, aren't we? We are more committed to our comfort than our holiness. We want completion. We want it to come easy. We want crowns without crosses. We want glory without grit. We want gain without pain. But it doesn't work that way. It never has. It never has. Deep down, we all know that. And thankfully, our heavenly father is more committed to our holiness than our happiness. He's more committed, in other words, to our joy than our fleeting fancies. And so he graciously tests us in the fiery trials of this world. But listen, before he does that, it's important to note what he calls us to. He did with his own son. And his son. Gladly went into the crucible himself freely, willingly, right? For the joy set before him, what did he do? Endure the cross, Hebrews 12. Before God called us to count it all joy, when we meet trials of various kinds, Jesus counted it all joy when he met trials of various kinds. He suffered for us knowing the completion of that work in the end. He doesn't call us, in other words, to something he hasn't already done himself. That's one of the many inexplicable beauties of the gospel. God hated evil and suffering and trials so much that he freely entered into all of them that he might overcome it. I couldn't be a Christian if that weren't true. That's true theologically and practically. That's what the gospel is all about, friends. Defeating the reason for trials' existence. Defeating the heart beneath the trials. Defeating sin and death. When Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless one, entered into the trials, overcame them all, was sinless. Therefore, as the perfect God-man, can uniquely offer his life as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, taking all of the condemnation on himself, entering into that trial and drinking the cup of wrath for all those that believe, paying for it, being buried, and rose on the third day, revealing that that sacrifice is taken, is revealed, is true, is able to forgive you and to reconcile you to God. Because of that finished work, for those that trust him, we too can do as Jesus did. We, With the joy set before us, we can endure our own crosses, our own trials. Knowing that on the other side, we will be complete, lacking nothing. Pain produces perfection if we let it. And thankfully, God is stronger than we are. It always has, beloved. God has been honest with us. He entered into it himself. And so let us commit ourselves to the long way on the ancient paths. And soon enough, we will be home with Christ in heaven, complete, lacking nothing. Or as Charles Albert Tenley, son of a slave, wrote in his hymn, By and By, he says, We are often tossed and driven on the restless sea of time. Somber skies and howling tempest oft succeed a bright sunshine. In that land of perfect day, when the mists have rolled away, we will understand it better by and by. By and by. When the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story how we've overcome, for we'll understand it in the by and by. One of my jobs as your pastor is to prepare you to suffer. And God promises to meet us in it. And I'll be there with you too. And so will these other saints. And we'll get home eventually. And we'll be glad we trusted him and endured. He's doing something. Trust him. Count it all joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your brutal honesty about the difficulties of this world. Thank you that in the trials, you tell us you're at work. Lord, we agree with the psalmist who asks how long or where are you? But Lord, let us, like the psalmist, land in the right place, knowing that you're at work and you're going to get us home. You're using the fire to make us pure gold. And thank you, Jesus, that you freely entered into that. This is not something abstract to you. This is something personal and experienced to you. And because of your suffering, you have purchased for us the promise of redemption. That on the other side of our trials and tribulations, on the other side of our deaths, is everlasting glory, perfection, completeness, lacking nothing. Oh, God, get us home. Get us home. Do your work in us. And may we hold fast to you and to each other that we might be a bright and shining light to the world that needs hope amidst their trials. And thank you, God, for the ways in which this church has been doing that. May we press on all the more, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.